Iko Taoka, then 21, was one of nearly 100 passengers said to have been on board a streetcar that had left Hiroshima Station at a little after 8 a.m. and was in a Hachibori area, 750 meters from Ground Zero, when the bomb fell. Taoka was heading for Funari with her one-year-old son to secure a wagon in preparation for her move out of the building, which was to be evacuated. At 8.15, as the streetcar approached Hachibori Station, an intense flash and blast engulfed the car, instantly setting it on fire. Taoka's son died of radiation sickness on August 28th. The survival of only 10 people on the streetcar have been confirmed to date. All right, folks, uh, welcome back. It's your Juno. Uh, I'm not going to say for the week because we've been really disorganized for the past little while. Um, but I think Declan's now back permanently. He's recovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have probably our biggest episode yet for you uh, today. And we're going to have this two-part. We're going to have another one coming up uh, soon. So uh, I'm just going to make a note. I, I think this episode will have more listeners than we usually do and some new listeners. So just to explain... This is Juno Beach. Uh, this is a podcast we're run by two Canadian university students. Uh, I'm a, a history major. Uh, my co-host Declan is my friend. He's a uh, poli sci major. Sociology, uh, so not like... poli sci. I'm not that much of a cop. Come on. Okay, good, 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 good. Sorry, I was, I was, I, I know it was always my mark against you, but I guess I was wrong. So, nope, not anymore. Um, that's good. So we switched. Anyways. We'd look at news and history, but specifically when we look at news, we look at a sort of historical bent. Uh, we like to focus on Canadian topics, but we also try and, and vary ourselves around the world. We, we sometimes fall victim to focusing on U.S. politics a lot, and we kind of excuse it as, oh, well, it's really important to Canada, too, because they're right there. But, yeah, you know, every episode, it's a little different. Sometimes we'll hyper-focus on one thing in history. Sometimes we'll just do a standard reading of the Twitter <laughs> trending tab, yeah. it feels like, some weeks. I think next episode after this two-parter is going to be about uh, the Hundred Years' War, uh, and specifically Shakespeare's play Henry V. So it's a real variety of stuff. Uh, I'm sure you might enjoy it. But uh, I would like to introduce uh, our very esteemed guest. Um, so today we are going to be talking about, uh, because uh, as you're listening to this, it's the anniversary of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. As you'll listen to the next episode, it'll be released on the anniversary of the atomic bombing of Nagasaki. Um, so we have a little bit of an expert uh, on to talk about that. Uh, so I'll, I'll just let her introduce herself. Uh, hello, um, I'm Haley, uh, Mr. Too Damn Cancelled. Uh, you may know me from my rap uh, pseudonym, Critical Race Theory. Who makes a lot of bad jokes, but in real life, um, offline for the most part, I am an aspiring historian. Um, I study under a man named Peter Kuznick, who is probably the world's foremost uh, nuclear historian. Um, and so my crusade in life is uh, and nuclear abolition and specifically um, educating people about the atomic bombings, the truth of the atomic bombings, uh, countering the establishment U.S. narrative that kind of rose out of nowhere to justify a lot of the things we see happening um, in the Cold War throughout the 20th century and continuing today. Um, So this is a really critical moment in history that a lot of people, even on the left, don't really know the full story about. Um, 
So this is one of the few things I have legitimate expertise in that I am really passionate about. So I appreciate everybody listening and uh, Malcolm and Declan for having me on. Thank you. Um, and this should be a really good talk, uh, if not somewhat depressing. Um, but we'll try to get our riffs in where we, where yeah. we can. I mean, look. Yeah. So, well, first of all, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Um, second of all, yeah, I mean, we, we do do a bit of riffs, but I think just for the next two episodes, a general content warning for uh, war crimes, some pretty horrific descriptions about what people on the ground would have actually experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to go over a lot in these two episodes. We're going to talk about the decision to drop the bomb, its development, what it was actually like, its aftermath, a little bit of a Canadian context. Um, I'm sure anybody who is even marginally interested in history has encountered the type of guy who claims to be an amateur historian, uh, but the only thing they're really interested in is like tanks or German uniforms from the the Great War and World War II. Um, I think one of the opinions that is very common is, oh, go ahead. Well, I think you even now have started, it's it started leeching out of World War II and now into the Cold War almost. You see a lot of yeah. kind of bad like Bay of Pigs takes, for example, or people yeah. that get really into like East German history without like a good understanding of sort of everything that was at play there. Um, and, yeah. you know, we obviously don't have enough time to talk about all of that. We're, we're trying to hyper-focus here. But um, we really just want to say, we are the first ethical um, young people to take an interest in something that is, you know, related to World War II. We're just putting up <laughs> a disclaimer. We're putting up a disclaimer that we are not World War II kids in, in that yeah, sense. For sure. I feel um, seen because I am the tank guy. Yeah, but I, I mean, fair enough. Look, tanks are interesting. Declan knows a lot about I tanks. mean, yeah, I, I say that as though I don't have like 700 hours in War Thunder. But anyway, we don't have yeah. to talk about that. We don't have to talk about that. But yeah, one of these common opinions of this type of person uh, is this idea that the, and it's not only among these type of people, but I'm, I'm just, because it's sort of a history focused thing, uh, is that Japan would not have surrendered without the two atomic bombs. Um, so I think that we want to destroy that narrative uh, in this episode. We want to talk a little bit about the historiography of it, um, et cetera. So I think at this point, I'm just going to turn it over to Haley for a minute and let her take it away. Right. Yeah. We love History Channel brain. Um, <laughs> um, okay. So when you study history, you're not only studying names dates and facts, uh, you, you're studying the craft of history itself. Uh, that's something we call historiography, literally the study of history, the changing narratives over time. It's just as important as the facts themselves because you can never tell like an objective history. It's always gonna be um, affected by social attitudes, uh, biases and, and whatnot. But um, So there's a couple of narratives around the atomic bombing that come out in chronological order, basically, um, from the time it occurred. Uh, The first, uh, which most of you, uh, including the our aforementioned uh, History Channel brain guys uh, subscribe to, is the heroic narrative, which is uh, that World War II was a good war. It was the good old boys uh, fighting to end fascism. Dropping the bombs was necessary, not only necessary, morally righteous, um, and it hastened the end of the war. Uh, to avoid a land invasion and ultimately save lives. Um, And when you think of this heroic narrative, you think of that famous picture of the soldier kissing the lady 
in um, Times Square, you think of perhaps the mushroom cloud, the view above the destruction, um, and, and really like the truth of what went on uh, with the bombings. Um, then you have the tragic narrative, which is something that kind of emerged in the 60s and 70s out of like revisionist uh, schools of history, which is more that the bombs were unnecessary, the decision to drop them was more morally bankrupt, uh, Japan was already clearly defeated, um, most of the people killed were women, children, and slaves. Uh, those who survived were then tortured by radiation poisoning for the rest of their lives. Um, and uh, so we contrast the mushroom cloud with uh, something called what uh, Hibakusha uh, atomic bomb survivors called the Pikadon. Uh, Pika means flash and don means the shockwave after. So that is how what uh, the atomic bombs are called in Japan. Um, and it's, that's the symbol of the death and suffering on the ground. Um, and this is an increasingly common view, the tragic narrative, even some Americans, um, right? Even conservative Americans will concede that, you know, it was a tragic thing, you know, it was a real shame that we had to liquidate 200,000 people. Like, you know what, still had to happen or they, so they're still kind of failing to grasp the stakes and the, the things that uh, unleashing these weapons on the world uh, set in motion, both in terms of geopolitics and like more existential, uh, should I say, issues. The third narrative uh, as proposed by my mentor, Peter Kuznick, uh, is the apocalyptic narrative. Uh, so dropping the bombs was absolutely a war crime. Uh, Truman knowingly set in process, uh, let me say that again. Truman knowingly set in motion a process which could potentially end all life on earth, right? We're not talking an act of genocide, we're talking omnicide. Uh, the atomic bombings were a crime against humanity, and we have been lucky to survive in their shadow for the better part of a century. Uh, Truman claims to have never lost a wink of sleep over this decision. Um, I mean, and Oh, go ahead. Truman is like one of those classic demons. I mean, he's, he's in the Hall of Fame when it comes to U.S. empire because it was his doctrines that sort of set the U.S. up to take on a, a, a world police role during the Cold War, you know, Absolutely. trying to let's let's hold the USSR accountable if, if Truman was around today. Yep. Well, the Truman Doctrine was explicitly taking over from the British Empire and the French Empire uh, as this sort of, yeah, like I, I think that if I remember correctly, there are even like U.S. policymakers that even started referring to the United States as an empire, not as a negative term. Um, around that time, I think, Haley, you and I were, when we were talking about this episode, you mentioned that uh, Truman was just a Freudian nightmare. I think we'll talk about that later, but um, oh, we will. he is certainly, as we sort of dive into this, you will learn that it makes sense that Truman never lost a wink of sleep over authorizing the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people because uh, of just how messed up he was. Yeah, Truman was a rat bastard and he's really, his entire life is just um, an experiment in falling up. Uh, but yeah, I think the Truman Doctrine was first used to uh, justify uh, putting down the KKE in Greece, yeah, I believe. for sure. Yeah, yeah that's it. Yep. Uh, so it's really funny how like a completely unremarkable uh, femboy from Missouri uh, who couldn't fight and got zero pussy uh, became kind of the arbiter of geopolitics for like the first half of the 20th century. Um, well, I mean, even beyond that, I, I wouldn't even say the first half considering um, 
like the way in which, you know, as you mentioned, this decision to drop the bomb has affected all of, you know, the entire planet's decision-making in terms of geopolitics going forward. Like that is one of the single most momentous decisions in history. Yeah. So I, I would even up the stakes there a little bit more. But anyways, that's- You're absolutely right. I just, I, I try not to give him too much credit because he was kind of more of a puppet, right? It, it wasn't like his grand scheme to uh, facilitate this new world order. Uh, it was whatever the opposite of a happy accident is. Yeah, like if, if you um, want to say right place, yeah. right time for someone who believes in the meritocracy and just is such a social climber that, you know, they, they end up being president you know, it's, we, we have it here that he didn't really want to, like he was content to sort of let the machine run itself. And he didn't, you know, he didn't want really to be elected in, in 44. So it's, yeah, like we'll get into that. many, many have said that he is the craziest white boy to ever do it. And I mean, he, that's Stalin. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> I mean, it's not white. Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. He, yeah, that's um, one of my favorite things to do is, is, is whenever people bring up, I mean, there are plenty of reasonable criticisms of the guy. Whenever people are like, you know, kill a hundred million people, I always just like to bring up that Stalin wasn't white. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a funny fact to make people feel bad. It is. Bad. And yeah. it's true. No, yeah, it is true. He's Asian. <laughs> oh my God. All right. So let's bring, so we talked about, uh, we'll get into Truman more later. Uh, don't worry. But so I want to contrast like the three narratives I talked about with the bombings with the, and how they fit into the three larger myths of World War II, at least that we have in America. I don't know. I'm sure in Canada, you got mostly the same story, but the three major myths to Americans about the war is that first of all, the United States won the war or that the allies, uh, an equal part won the war. Uh, that the Cold War began during World War II as a result of Soviet aggression, um, which we see um, with the power plays of FDR and uh, especially Churchill um, and that their overall dynamic that uh, it's not the case. Um, if you even, most Americans, I don't think could really say much about the Cold War or even point to perhaps when it started. Um, and that's that would be a really interesting debate for another episode is like, what you consider to be the start of the Cold War and why, whether it's a cultural thing that started, you know, around the time of the October Revolution, or if it's like actual pen to paper, like George Kennan saying that the Soviets are up for world domination and we need to nuke them into oblivion. Uh, interesting incident, topic. Yeah, yeah. But well, we'll anyway, definitely have you back on then to talk about it. <laughs> I'd love to. All right, um, but so that the Cold War began and it was the Soviets' fault, that's the important part. And Finally, that dropping the atomic bombs ended the war. Um, so that's those are the uh, kind of creation myths of the American Cold War hawk mindset. Um, these and these myths enabled the United States to solidify itself as a global superpower and act above the rest of the world, really, with impunity um, through till today. Um, and I and many other historians argue that the bombs were dropped not out of any strategic necessity, as uh, we'll back up with some facts, but as to act as diplomatic leverage against the Soviet Union in determining the post-war post world order. Um, in fact, uh, you don't have to take my word for it. Six out of seven five-star generals in World War II agreed, and they have stated publicly that either the bombings were immoral, unnecessary, or both. Um, so even if you're a cons more conservative or you're a hawk or you, you, you 
you have family who are veterans and you feel very uh, strongly about that for whatever reason. There are scores and scores, literally dozens of testimonials from top ranking U.S. military officials condemning the bombings immediate before, during and immediately after. Uh, So this is something that has far more of a consensus than uh, most people realize. It's not really even a left revisionist position. Yeah, like the Um, and when you under. Go ahead. Sorry, like the bombings were condemned by the same people that turned around and knocked over Guatemala, right? Like it, it's, it yeah. was the same core of people that, you know, the, this is the moral compass that you're dealing with and they're still deciding to condemn the atomic bombing. You know, it, it, yeah, like you said, it's not a leftist revisionist. It was sort of right in the wake of it. Even the people who were, you know, in the ground zero metaphorically of that choice could see that something had shifted. You know, like like that, like that, like that, that woman right. in January twenty twenty. Yeah. Something shifted. Shit's about to get weird. Well, yeah, and uh. when they and, that, and then they started refocusing with the new enemy being the Soviet Union, and then they went right back to work trying to make it happen again. It was kind yeah. of a oh, that was a uh, that was a misstep, okay. not a that was something that yeah that we should entirely reconsider our military. It was, oh, that was an individually bad thing. We need to figure out the good way to do stuff like that. Yeah, uh, so that happened. <laughs> um, but fucking Curtis LeMay, who we're also going to talk about, probably one of the single most evil person uh, in charge uh, during World War II. I mean, if you total talk body count. Yeah, uh, total Kermit freak. Patton are, probably has... Well, we're not going to go victims of communism, but you know what I'm saying. Curtis LeMay, all-time evil bastard, um, literally advocated for nuking Korea, Russia, China, like dozens of times. Even that guy was like, no, I didn't want the bombs to be dropped. I think we didn't really need to. And also, like, I wanted the credit because I was the architect of the firebombings which we'll talk about and how that factored into the decision. He wanted the credit. So it was more selfish than anything, but even he, he would concede that it was not strategically necessary. Um, and yeah, he, I mean, even with the atomic bombings, Curtis LeMay has almost as much uh, of a body count just from incinerating people alive. So I hope uh, he deserves something lower than hell. It'll be a competition between LeMay and Kissinger to see who can go further in hell. But um, yeah, I think we're going to talk about specifically some of the guy's personal racism. And I have a little account that I put in about uh, some of the effects of the firebombing uh, later. But do you want to just talk for a second about the Manhattan Project and, and sort of how this came about? Absolutely. Let me just scroll to my notes. I could talk about this. I could do a whole episode on any one of these subtopics. Um, but so the uranium atom was split in 1938 by two German scientists. Um, later on in 1939, early 1939, Niels Bohr informs uh, the United States of this development and the potential for an atom bomb begins to be theorized. Um, European scientists that were fleeing Nazi Germany warned the US of the Nazi bomb program, which did exist. It was almost Wolfenstein levels of cartoonish. Um, there was this thing called the Uber, or there was this thing called an America bomber where they wanted to, 
put a bomber within a larger bomber because at that tech at that time the technology couldn't fly a plane uh, on one tank of gas um, all the way to New York, but they wanted to nuke New York by putting a plane within another plane and then putting a bomb and then just having it like suicide bomb. But uh, the the Nazi bomb project is just a meme. Uh, so in hindsight, they didn't really have much to worry about, but that is what spurred the creation of the Manhattan Project. Niels Bohr tells uh, the US, other scientists, um, but nobody's really getting any traction. So Albert Einstein had to personally petition FDR uh, pleading with him to research an atomic bomb to act as a deterrent against a Nazi bomb. Um, so Roosevelt greenlights the project. Um, and then Albert Einstein later said that urging FDR to start the Manhattan Project was his greatest regret in life, uh, which really speaks volumes. One of whatever you think about him, uh, one of the brightest minds in history. Uh, didn't his theory of relativity like literally just get proven I mean, I know it's like yeah. proven, but it well, just got yeah, proven like, like last week or something. Last week, they were able to use some radio imaging of the backside of a black hole to prove Einstein's theory of relativity with physical evidence. Yeah. When before it was only proved by sort of mathematical, theoretical evidence. Uh, and so that's like one of the final steps towards reconciling quantum mechanics and relativity, which is very cool. Yeah. So you've literally got everybody from the guy who invented like quantum physics, quantum mechanics, whatever, to like evangelical Christians condemning these bombs. But so that's how the Manhattan Project starts. Um, Oppenheimer joins the project about a year later and right from the get-go, he, he was expressing skepticism about the project. Um, many scientists understood the implications of the bomb from the outset. They were actually running numbers early on and they calculated that um, there was like a 300 in a million chance of the bombs potentially setting the entire atmosphere on fire, right? Because they didn't know like chemically how it would work if it would just like ignite all the oxygen in the air. This was before anything had been tested. Um, but so they they ran the test a couple more times and they got it down to 30 out of a million. And they said, all right, we'll take that. We like those odds, like let's keep, let's keep going. So already knowing that potentially this could be disastrous. Um, Oppenheimer called for an end to the project in 1941, saying better to live in thraldom to the Nazis than to bring down the final curtain on mankind. And this man was no, I mean, he got fired and he got smeared uh, supposedly for being a, a member of the Communist Party. That was never proven. Um, but this man was no dove, you know, like he felt very strongly about the Nazis. He Jewish family, um, fled from there and he was still like, yeah, we are just dealing with something power that is literally like an affront to God. Um, and he Oppenheimer also correctly predicted that within like three to five years, there could be bombs that were thousands of times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb. And of course, uh, the first hydrogen bomb is tested uh, in 1952. Soviets get one in 53. So this power is quickly spiraling out of hand. Um, and today, the bombs that we have uh, are thousands of times more powerful than Fat Man or Little Boy uh, can cause partial nuclear winters just with a, a dozen of them. Um, so he was really scarily accurate about that. Um, in July 19, 1945, uh, Leo Szilard, one of the Manhattan Project scientists, uh, circulated a petition signed by 155 of the project scientists urging Truman against the use of the bomb. And him and his advisor, James Burns, uh, laughed off the petition. 
didn't even really cross his desk. So would you say that the scientific community kind of turned on the bomb like midway through the war or was it, you know, we said earlier, you know, Einstein and everyone is urging this development. And then would you, would it be, could you put like a specific time on when the, at least the scientific, if not the public consensus flipped on the opinion of the bomb? Is it's there hard like a, to, could you, could you nail down when that happened? It's hard to say that it flipped because it was so contentious from the get-go. And that's something that we don't realize, especially like as Americans is that this was always controversial. This was always somewhat unpopular. Um, but so I mentioned that in like 1940, 1941, Oppenheimer said better to live in thraldom to the Nazis than to, so they understood and they started kind of, um, forming internal like committee. They were, they were urging. The problem was that the Manhattan project had no real power, um, or no real correspondence with like the military or like the political wing. They were literally just some guys at MIT, at Oak Ridge, um, at Alamogordo, um, who were kind of just like tinkering around in a lab and didn't really have any opportunities to like enact policy changes, but they, a good deal of them were resistant pretty much from the start, at least like in hypotheticals, they were worried, concerned about like the extent of the bomb's power. And then as the war went on um, and it became more and more apparent, especially after the fire bombings that Japan was severely weakened, uh, they came out kind of in formal protests with the petition. So I guess you could say uh, Leo Szilard's petition could be the major turning point. Um, although there were also concurrent like military officials who were coming out against it. Um, uh, one of the admirals uh, in the Navy who, um, so there's this thing called uh, the interim committee, which was supposed to come to a final decision about the bomb that was chaired by uh, James Burns and uh, Henry, St Henry Stimson, who was the secretary of war. Um, and they had Manhattan Project Science Military Project also said uh, that both the petition and the Navy guy in this was July 1945. We're like, yeah, we don't need to do this. Um, so even internally, all the way at the top, uh, there was kind of a consensus forming around either doubting or outright uh, advocating against the use of the bombs. So I'd, I'd like to sort of take a pause at this point and talk about how these devices actually work. Because I think that you know, um, it's kind of important to to put it in the context that, you know, there's a lot of scientific work to be done in order to get to this point. I remember when I was in high school and I was doing all my chemistry classes, learning about the history of when different parts of the, of the atom were discovered. And so um, I think that it's uh, a particularly sort of horrifying thing to think about this sort of very slow crawl to potentially the sterilization of the planet. Um, but I also think it's important to just have the, the context. So, um, you know, there are a lot of terms that are thrown around sort of in the public conscious when it comes to uh, nuclear weapons, you know, splitting of the atom, even nuclear itself, like what does it all mean? And so I want to sort of break this down into its most basic things. So in the atom, there are three things called subatomic sub particles. They're uh, parts of the atom, but they're smaller than the atom itself. Um, and they fit into two categories. There are ones in the nucleus, which is the core of the atom. It's where we get the word nuclear and things in the shells, which are like orbits. So if you imagine the nucleus is the earth and the shells are the moon spinning around it. Although shells are not circular, 
that's a good way to imagine it. So the nucleus is made up of two particles. One is called a neutron, which has mass but no charge. And there's protons, which have the same mass as neutrons and a positive charge. And then in the shells, there are electrons, which have almost no mass but a negative charge. And so usually the charge in an element or an atom will balance out. There will be the same amount of protons and electrons. Um, but the amount of protons, neutrons, and electrons in an atom is constant throughout one element, uh, but different depending on what ele element it is. So hydrogen, helium will have a different amount of uh, protons, neutrons, and electrons, but every hydrogen atom will have the same amount. Um, uh, so by changing the amount of protons, neutrons, and electrons in an atom, you change what element it is. And there are only 118 elements because there are only 118 elements which are stable enough to be observed. Several of them don't even occur naturally because they're so unstable. Um, so you might be wondering why there are different elements in nature then, like why not just one? And this is because of two processes, one known as fusion and the other one known as fission. So in fusion, which is what the sun does, elements lower on the periodic table gain neutrons and as a result, electrons and protons to become elements higher on the table. Sun, hydrogen, when we talk about the construction of some of the more advanced nuclear weapons later on, either in this episode or in the next one, I think probably the next one. Fission is the opposite where elements shed neutrons to become elements lower down on the table. Uh, and both these processes release uh, as a byproduct an extraordinary amount of energy as nuclear bonds are broken and formed. This is how nuclear reactors generate electricity. This is how nuclear bombs explode. And so I just wanted to sort of add, I wanna add this just because we will be using technical terms later uh, just to have it. So uh, to explain how nuclear fission works specifically, uh, quote, fissile material is an element which decays. It's less stable and so it sheds neutrons over time. When it sheds neutrons, it becomes what is called an isotope of itself. An isotope is an element that has a different amount of neutrons than what is most stable, what you will find on the periodic table. Uh, and so an isotope is less stable. This is why instead of hearing when you talk about nuclear weapons, uranium or plutonium, you hear things like uranium-238 or plutonium-240. So to get a reaction, you want to get fissile material to a mass where enough protons, neutrons, electrons are being shed that it all starts to tear itself apart and all that energy is released. Uh, so this is why you hear things like enrichment, especially today when we talk about Iran or North Korea, because the more pure a fissile material it is, uh, the faster it decays because it has access to more of elements of the same type. And so there are more lone subatomic particles flying around. This is radiation. Things like alpha, beta, gamma radiation are caused by different combinations of these subatomic particles. So later on, I can talk about the construction of the bombs themselves. I just wanted to give that sort of primer uh, for how these things work so that people don't get confused when we use uh, these terms uh, later on. I appreciate that, Malcolm, but I actually played Fallout, so I already understood all that perfectly. Uh, so there's no need. You can Sorry, cut that. But... All right, I'll, I'll leave the meeting now. <laughs> yeah. Just... All right, Declan, you can take over. Yeah, I got this. All right. Owned. So yeah. do we want to roll it back real quick to Imperial Japan and kind of the setup there, or? Sure, yes. if you want. Yeah, because so... I think we wanted to talk about sort of the sphere of influence that can happen hammered out after. So if you want, I can also talk a little bit about the, the lead up to the war, why the war happened. Um, I will warn you, I do not have the conventional take, uh, the audience, I think uh, Haley will probably agree with a lot of what I'm saying, but I do not have the sort of mainstream take that, you know, Japan was the sole aggressor and America was simply stepping in. Right. right? Um, I think that the most important thing 
to keep in mind uh, is that, at least in my opinion, uh, which is backed by research, I might add, uh, World War II in the Pacific was a clash of empires. Uh, it was a Thucydides trap in a sense uh, where Japan and up and coming imperial power ran into the established powers of France, Britain, and the Netherlands and another up and coming imperial power in the Pacific, which was the United States, rather than Japan was being purely aggressive. They were being aggressive, their war in China, et cetera, um, shows that, but it, it's also, you know, part of the blame does fall in America, I'll get to that. But I wanna start actually in the 1860s here. Um, so in the 1600s, Japan decided to close it off, itself off to the world um, because uh, uh, of Christians uprisings in the country. Um, or I, I, Christian uprisings happened afterwards, but they didn't like Christian influence. And so they closed themselves off to the world. Um, and in the 1860s, uh, an American admiral named Commodore Perry shows up in Japan and starts shelling Tokyo Harbor, saying, open yourselves up to trade, which they do. Uh, and what follows is probably one of the most impressive um, feats of modernization uh, in history, maybe apart from what the Soviet Union did uh, a few decades later. Um, that was actually the first Black Friday. Yeah. Him shelling Tokyo and being like, yeah. open up. Yeah, they, they, really, they, really had, they really had the door crashing sales in the Tokyo Harbor. Funko Pops yeah. are, two, are two for one. Um, that's something for, I think, our American listeners. I don't think we really have that type of store rush in Canada. I could be wrong. I don't really go outside as much as other people. Um, but uh, so Japan modernizes. There's a civil war called the Boson War, um, where French-backed samurai essentially rebel against the modernizing British-backed emperor. Uh, they're put down. Uh, Japan modernizes very effectively. They base their army off of the British and the Germans, their navy off the British, their constitution off the British and the Americans. They really look around and take what seems to be working. Um, and they're really benefited, unlike some other Asian powers, in that Britain, who was history's only hyperpower really at the uh, a nation to colonize. You know, France and America initially wanted to colonize Japan, Britain, not so much. I, this is like the one little bit of credit I'll give them for their actions in Asia, which are otherwise pretty abhorrent. Um, and so Japan ends up more stable than, another, than its neighbors in like China and Korea. Uh, and they end up becoming an imperial power in their own right. By 1895, they've taken Taiwan. In the early 1900s, they get overlordship in Korea. They take that from, from China. Uh, etc. But in 1904-1905, um, they have a clash of influence with Russia, the Russian Empire, um, which ends in a very impressive and decisive defeat for Russia, which, first of all, shocks the world, um, because these, quote, inferior people have just defeated one of the world's most ancient powers. It solidifies Japan as a world power, at least a Pacific power, and it also leads to a revolution in Russia, which sets the stage for the Bolsheviks. Um, you know, Nicholas II, the Tsar, was a horrible tactician, military strategist, etc. He insisted on going to war. His generals did as well, while Russia's political system was collapsing uh, at home. So in 1928, uh, after World War I, where Japan fought on the side of their ally Britain, but didn't really get as much as they wanted to in the peace deal, uh, ultra-nationalists, or people's secret ultra-nationalist ties, began to take control of the Japanese government, although to keep their ties secret. In 1929, uh, along with the rest of the world, the Japanese economy collapses. Uh, well, the rest of the capitalist world, I will say. The Soviets were doing all right. Um, in the aftermath of Black Tuesday, Japan has plunged into the Great Depression. 
Um, and like many imperial nations or imperial powers, when they're faced with woes at home, they begin to turn to external threats to stabilize their government. And Japan ends up getting this weird system of incident-based diplomacy where junior officers will try to gain glory for themselves. Uh, they will stage border conflicts and just escalate into wars uh, without the central government in Tokyo, sometimes even knowing about it, let alone approving it. So in 1931, there's an incident in Northern China. Japan used a false flag attack on a railroad to occupy Manchuria in Northern China. Uh, they establish a client state there. Uh, they, in fact, invite the deposed Zhuangtong Emperor, the last Qing Emperor of China, to rule as a puppet in an attempt to give it an air of legitimacy. Uh, in 1932, uh, in what is called the February 26th incident, a group of fascist and ultranationalist junior officers attempt a coup. Uh, it fails. They assassinate the Prime Minister, but the Emperor refuses to recognize them. Um, and as a result, more sort of rather than fascist, sort of more ultra-nationalist uh, or more pragmatist in a sense, military officers are able to, to gain more control over the Japanese government. Uh, so from 1932 to 1939, the Japanese get into all sorts of border conflicts with the Soviet Union, as well as getting involved in 1937 in a war, a all-scale full-out war with China proper, uh, begin the Sino-Japanese War, which is actually only the fifth deadliest war in Chinese history, but the casualties were up to 22 million, which actually places that war alone uh, just behind all casualties of the entire Great War. It's face China to the day. Most of those casualties are civilians, whether it is the result of uh, scorched earth policies by China's nationalist government, famines, or some terrible atrocities and war crimes committed by the Japanese. Um, Japan has border conflicts, as I mentioned, with the Soviet Union or their Mongolian client state, which they lose, which determines them to set down a path of confrontation with the Western allies to steal their colonies rather than the Soviet Union. So in 1940, France falls to Nazi Germany, Japan occupies French Indochina and the strategy is solidified. And as we all know, in December of 1941, because America was embargoing their oil uh, and they were, having, they were struggling in China, Japan tries to have a very quick naval war against the United States to force terms on them. So they attack Pearl Harbor, uh, but uh, as they, they don't expect it, America decides that they're going to go all out rather than roll over. By 1942, most of Japan's carrier force is destroyed. Uh, they uh, are forced to essentially cease waging the war offensively and start waging it defensively um, when they attempt to capture the island of Midway near Hawaii and they fail. Um, so rather than the strategy being defeat the American Navy and force them to come to terms, it's hold up long enough that they offer us terms to brutal. In 1943, uh, Roosevelt, uh, Sir Winston Churchill, and Chiang Kai-shek, the Chinese, uh, was not present despite being part of the war. Europe because he had a neutrality later. Um, the idea is that the Japanese colonies in China would be returned to them, you know, Manchuria, Taiwan, the Pescadores. Uh, Korea would be uh, granted independence, uh, although the Americans would not <laughs> uphold that end of the deal. We've got an old episode about that. Arrested um, Development music starts playing. Or excuse yeah. me, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Curb Your Enthusiasm, yes. <laughs> Um, but it also establishes confusion of expectations for the allies in U.S. or what they get in Asia. So at this point, yeah. Imperial Japan's already off script, right? That none yeah. of their war effort is going the way that they want it to. 
and yeah, Haley, like you said, this is it, it's that's also when the opinion on the bomb is you know gaining more gaining more opposition to the bomb, at least in the scientific and the the military industrial mm-hmm. complex. So, you know, it, it 43 is obviously too early to say that the writing was on the wall for the Imperial Japanese, but the Americans at this stage had repelled the attack. Yeah. You know, Japan, and, and, you know, Japan, Japan attempts, Japan... Japan attempted to impose terms. They failed. They were pushed back. And then the Americans decided to go for the throat, I guess. Yeah. So I think this is actually kind of important because there are sort of like these sort of three stages of the war for Japan. There's, we're going to destroy their Navy and put terms on them. And then there's in an de- decisive offensive battle. Then there's, we're going to, you know, damage their Navy in a decisive defensive battle and put terms on them. And then by 1944 and the quote Pacific D-Day of the Battle of Saipan, um, they sort of acknowledge that their best hope is to make it bloody for America and get a conditional surrender. Yeah. They, they accept that they will lose, but they want to get good terms. So yeah, but in Tehran, in Iran, in 1943, um, Stalin and the Western allies meet for the first time. I also want to mention, sorry, that in the Atlantic conference between Churchill and Roosevelt, um, Britain had agreed not to take any territorial spoils after World War II. And so there was some confusion about that. Um, But uh, Churchill and FDR agreed to open a second front to relieve the Soviets who are being exhausted by a 3,000 kilometer wide Nazi front, even though they're starting to win the war by this point, you know, Stalingrad has, Battle of Stalingrad has been won, it's still what they need. And so Churchill actually agreed and signed to a second front on July 12th, 1941. Uh, but this would not be delivered until three and a half years later uh, in, in Normandy. I think, Haley, you and I disagree on where the fault lies for this one. Um, you know, you, you say that, that the Allies' failure to open a second front was the crux of Stalin's distrust and disdain for, for their allies, especially Churchill, because he was dragging his feet while tens of millions died. This is true. Um, but the way I sort of see it, uh, and I'm willing to be challenged on this one, is that it was kind of a clash in the allies between a, a strategy of attacking from the south, attacking Italy, and attacking in the north. You know, you can see that in late 1942 and uh, early 1943, the British lead offensive operations against Italy, but it's not until 1944 that a large front, uh, the Americans preferred strategy is opened up uh, against the Nazis in France because the Americans refused to land all out support to the Italian and Yugoslav front. Um, either way, the allies did drag their feet. Well, right. tens of millions yeah. of Soviet soldiers and civilians died. I think that is not really an important decision, a distinction on whether it's Churchill or Roosevelt that we blame more for that. It was, um, yeah, exactly. It was like less a concerted effort to bleed out the Soviets and more of a combination of like strat- strategical like issues and also uh, Churchill being happy to. Churchill was especially stubborn through all of this. FDR and Stalin had kind of a contentious uh, friendship or uh, they, they had a mutual respect for one another and FDR under... Stalin. Uh, Stalin, for all that he gets labeled a brute, uh, he was a very, very skilled uh, political manipulator and navigator. He knew how to pick up on trends and certain plays that people were making and exploit them to his own advantage. So, uh, and FDR recognized that. Churchill 
thought he was smarter than him, you know, typical hubris and was actually just, he was the real brute uh, and a bumbling idiot. Uh, yeah. But um, a couple of things I wanted to say, just backing up, uh, you mentioned Saipan and like the three phases of the war. So Saipan in July 44, a really crushing defeat um, for Japan that ushered in um, or that was kind of the, the, their phase three strategy, their end game was the Ketsugo strategy. Um, once the Americans had finished island hopping and commenced their ground invasion, they were going to bait them. They were going to bait them into a land invasion and then put them down really, really badly, trying to get up uh, in the beaches and the foothills and whatnot. Uh, basically, like and D-Day they probably could have. Oh. They, they probably, they probably well, could. if they weren't, that's the question, right? Um, Ketsugo was no longer really viable yeah. by like late 43, 44, because the fight, like the strategic bombings and everything, because, well, Saipan is when um, the Americans got finally within striking distance with their B-29s. So that's after that, the fire bombings commenced. Um, that's when we really just beat the shit out of their infrastructure and stuff. So they probably could have held out a little against a ground invasion, but it was going to be nowhere near like the crushing defeat that they really needed. And especially with the knowledge that the Soviets were coming in and they were going to fight a two front war. Absolutely not. I think that's fair. I think that, um, you know, the Japanese had millions of mobilized people in their islands and a guerrilla war, no matter how much with that many people is going to be brutal, especially with the terrain of Japan. I just also think that Japan was going to surrender without a ground invasion anyways. And if like America might well have been forced off of Japan, but they never even had to try. Yeah. Um, and pe- but I, so it, it doesn't, doesn't really matter whether uh, Operation Downfall would have succeeded or not. And people don't realize that Downfall wasn't slated to start until November. Uh, Operation August Storm, uh, Soviet invasion of Manchuria uh, commenced. It actually, Stalin actually went through with the invasion. The invasion of uh, Manchuria was happening concurrent with uh, the atomic bombing of Nagasaki. Actually started a couple hours before that bomb was dropped. Uh, And that decision was made at Yalta. But um, another thing I wanted to touch on really quickly was that um, there's, uh, I mean, Declan mentioned like the kind of cognitive dissonance between like what Japan was saying about the war effort and what was actually going on pretty much the only two times that they were truly honest about uh, their like part in the war was at Midway um, and at Saipan when they kind of had no choice but to admit defeat because it was such a horrible loss but um, there was like uh, I think it was MacArthur that said that famous quote that like Oh, uh, we Japan would never surrender. Uh, all would fight to die like ants, basically. Um, and that there, there's a lot more like political turmoil behind the scenes in Imperial Japan and in the lead up to Japan uh, becoming an empire than a lot of people know about. Uh, there was a pretty strong like anarchist contingent uh, in around like in like the 1860s onward, like t- to the turn of the century in Japan. I believe the first woman uh or excuse me the first person who uh received capital punishment um in modern japanese history was a female anarchist i forget her name Um, but there were a lot of different like factions uh vying for power and i don't i really can't say if there was any chance that japan could have ever gone socialist or whatever but i wouldn't 
but yeah. someone did almost assassinate uh, uh, Hirohito when he was crumpled. Oh, yeah. And there were tons an of coups yeah. and assassination yeah. attempts during the war. Yeah. Um, but that's I wanted to bring that up because that lends credence to the theory that above all, Japan was terrified of a communist invasion and takeover um, and, of course, retaining the emperor. But that's uh, so I wanted to. And so when we. I also wanted to drive home that like none of this is Imperial Japan apologia. And I don't, and I also reject the notion that like, oh, it's the same reason why people say Dresden was good. Like, oh, it's okay that we like, it's really the Curtis LeMay quote that there's no innocent civilians, but there's a lot more happening behind the scenes. And especially with the atomic bombings, um, like 30 to 40,000 of the victims were like enslaved Koreans and Chinese people. So it's not just like epically owning the fascists by liquidating 200,000 people that you have to understand that that was done to establish a world order that would be friendly uh, to, if not just outright promoting fascism. So, I, you know, I specifically made a, a tweet against uh, Nippon Kagi groups uh, on the Juno beach Twitter account a few days ago to uh, preempt any criticism that this is Imperial Japan apologia. Yeah. Because that's you, you have to understand the big picture. Like, this was a power play to cement like US supremacy in the world, uh, and by association or by design, even uh, I mean, fascism. Yeah, it, it was sort of a making an example of a city of hundreds of thousands of people, right? Like, it, yeah, it was to show that this is the power that we're working with, and if you want to oppose us you'd better at least have some of these, you know, you better have some nukes and you'd better be willing to fight this kind of war against us. Right. And Japan, like the empire committed horrible atrocities at Nanking, Manchuria, so many other places, the, the Bataan death march, especially that was the turning point for the American public, right? Like the American intelligentsia and like some of the higher up, uh, political figures were they're internally resisting the bomb, but public opinion was heavily, heavily in favor. And when you think about after the Bataan Death March, especially, which was like they they would show footage of it in theaters, like before movies and stuff during the war. So people were out for blood, and you have to understand that this, like the popular whatever popular support there was for the bomb, was heavily peoples. Um, this starts with kind of the first wave of Asian immigrants to the West Coast. It was actually partly a result of a sexual panic. Uh, and you'll find more and more when you study history that um, a lot of the racial stereotypes that uh, uh, like the white establishment like imposes on ethnic groups, sexual threats, uh, threats to sexual dominance. So that's where actually the myth of like the emasculated Asian man comes from. But I mean, long history of just subjugation and dehumanization of Asian peoples in America. Um, Truman has so many fucking racist quotes that I cannot even paraphrase probably safely. Um, virulent racist. Um, sorry, I kind of yeah. lost my train of no, thought I mean, there, that's but fair. I, I think to make that clear. We want to talk about that. I think we'll talk about it in the next in the next part of this uh, two-parter. But it's a similar history in Canada, and I'll, I'll get into that when we talk about it. But especially when you look at some of their policy towards second and third generation Japanese immigrants in, in America, 
at the time. Like you're you're absolutely right that racism, just pure virulent hatred for Japanese people cannot be sort of thrown out as a deciding factor in the decision to drop the bomb. And I think that, you know, maybe the scientists started developing the bomb to use against Germany, but I honestly don't think that it would have been if it was ready in time. I don't think that they would have nuked wherever, you know, mm-hmm. Man, uh, sorry, Hamburg or anything like that. Like, I just, I don't think it would have happened. Yeah, no, actually there was even more internal uh, opposition to any uh, proposal of nuking Germany, right? Because we were nuking fellow white people, fellow, you know, God-loving, God-loving Christians, those, those yeah, Nazis. But it's a lot easier to justify dropping the bomb when, like we went over earlier, like there was this perception that the Japanese would never surrender and that yeah. you would have yeah. to flush them all out, you know, in order to, or at least have some sort of, I guess, proto-shock and awe to show them, right, that this is what's going to keep happening to you because again, it's, it's sort of dehumanizing, like that they won't exactly. understand it when their backs to the wall until you pull the trigger on them. Yeah. You're snatching was, up yeah. hundreds, like over a hundred thousand Japanese Americans and putting them in internment camps. And by the way, that's Truman didn't do that. FDR did that. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's not uh, let this valorize FDR in any ways, but yeah, it's a lot easier to imagine people as less than human when they are just systemically like forcibly um, like marginalized by your government. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And I think it's also an important, I'll say fun fact is that it was Germany that fought to the end. It was Germany where you had to flush out every last soldier. It was not Japan. Right. Yeah. And then they Um, all got really cushy jobs. Well, yeah, they all got really, really cushy jobs. Uh, Well, and in fairness, you know, as we talked about in a previous episode, some of the uh, worst Japanese war criminals in Unit 731, all their research in chemical weapons and biological weapons just got sent to South Korea to use in the Korean War so that they could draw Black Plague on North Korean civilian. Um, so yeah, uh, Yalta Conference in February 1945, we'd mentioned it, it was Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin. It's like the famous one. Um, it was the last meeting of the Grand Alliance before FDO's death and arguably the most important meeting of the war. The goals were a European endgame, post-war peace and security, and critically establishing spheres of influence. Uh, Obviously the Soviets were in the best position to negotiate. Their armies were only 50 miles from Berlin, probably be about 70 kilometers. Uh, They were occupying Poland, much of Eastern Europe with three times the deployed infantry of the other allies. Um, Roosevelt wanted Soviet assistance with the Japanese um, and they wanted the Soviets to join uh, the United Nations when it was founded after the war. Uh, Churchill wanted, quote, democracy in Poland. What that really means is he wanted an institution of the pre-war government, which was mm-hmm. a fascist regime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was a fascist regime of its own. Funny history, how that right? works. Which, yeah, straight up. <laughs> yeah, which even, like, tried to get an alliance with Nazi Germany in the 1936. And the Nazis, like, seriously considered trading an alliance for some territory. Um, also when, uh, you know, in the Munich conference, when Britain and France were trying to, you know, appease Germany and say, you can have this, but don't take any more. The Soviets tried to send a million troops to Czechoslovakia to protect it. And the Polish, Polish one let them through. Yep. So it's just, it's a very notable thing when they want to reinstate the Polish government. I mean, regardless of what you think of, you know, East Bloc politics 
in the post-war period, regardless of what you think of Stalin, what they had in Poland beforehand was worse. Um, at the very least, uh, even if they didn't want what ended up happening, which was just an imposition of a communist state, uh, you do not like reimposition of the previous government cannot be justified under any circumstances because they're a fascist dictatorship. So um, yeah, the Soviets did agree to join the UN. Uh, Stalin also agreed to join in three months time uh, or three months after the war in Europe ended uh, the war against Japan, a promise which he did fulfill. Um, and yeah, the allies also promised, as we mentioned, the USSR, many of their spoils lost in the Russo-Japanese war. Manchuria, railways in Mongolia, um, you know, Stalin agreed to maintain Koreans independence as they're already a war uh, with Japan. And the Soviets got all that. They ended up handing Manchuria over to Mao Zedong. Um, and Korea, the Soviets gave their best shot to try and get democracy there. And uh, like a kind of a left-wing democracy in the United States. We all know how that worked out. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, um, I'll turn it back over to you, Haley. All right. Um, so I wanted to mention uh, concurrently to this, uh, concurrently to Yalta is um, yet another example of uh, Japan showing readiness uh, to surrender. Uh, Prince Kanoe wrote to Emperor Hirohito that defeat was inevitable. And he echoed the, the sentiment that was becoming more common that uh, communist takeover and removal of the empire was their uh, biggest concern. Um, also, after Yalta, this is when Churchill begins to draft his Operation Unthinkable, which was his formal plan to go to war with the Soviet Union um, immediately following uh, the, the defeat of the Nazis. Um, and of course, the Soviets had three times as many troops uh, occupying the Eastern Front uh, as the other allies did combined. Uh, so he was going to facilitate that war with captured German arms strapped to captured Nazi soldiers. So he was literally just going to turn the Nazis right back around, say, you work for us now, boys, and then go take down uh, the Soviet Union, who were the far and away the decisive fact. Like, that's not even a, a revisionist like left thing also, is that far and away the people who defeated the Nazis in the first place and dealt 93% of Nazi casualties were just going to go back over and steamroll them because all of the other allies their ultimate goal was in line with the Nazis. It was defeating communism. Hitler's war was primarily a war against communism. And this is something that people forget. It wasn't primarily motivated by racial or ethnic hatred, although that was certainly a part of it because he thought that Jewish people and Slavic peoples were inferior and their slave labor was needed to uh, establish a continental Reich. But like this is, so Churchill starts planning to, go to war and betray Stalin. Stalin is, of course, aware of this uh, by the time Potsdam happens. Um, so let's, before we move to Potsdam, let's, let me first uh, introduce Truman. Um, because right after Yalta, as we know, it really took a toll on FDR. His health had been failing for some time um, and he just couldn't recover from the stress of traveling. Um, so he passes away on April 12th, 1945. The very last thing that Truman said, or excuse me, that FDR said to Truman, he wrote uh, to show uh, restraint with the Soviets, to not provoke them, uh, to kind of act in good faith towards them, to avert what he knew was bubbling, if not like in those exact terms was a Cold War. 
um, and Truman barrels onto the scene. Uh, Harry Truman was an ain't shit little fucking punk. Um, and his career, like I said before, is a deadly experiment in the art of falling up, a testament to the dangers of temperamental and incompetent people presiding over the use of nuclear weapons, which I just want to add that like there is no safe or like upstanding moral person that can make nuclear weapons safe. Like it doesn't really come down to whether you're a good person or not because they're dangerous just by virtue of existing. But I just wanted to add that in there because people were, were crying about how Trump, you know, has a nuclear football and oh, that's so abhorrent. But like, especially since every US president approves of the atomic bombings, like it's not out of the realm of possibility to say that any of them would be happy to use these weapons. So it's not just really- But, re- but oh, Haley, he's a Cheeto. He's a Cheeto. He's a, and he's he has a snack the nuclear food. codes. He's he's orange. He's, he's or- also addicted to posting. Like, I know. Why I know. would I'm, he? I I'm really mad they took. Him Look, off I think I think he it, was nuking people in the quote tweets. It, yeah, it might exactly. have it might have been uh, the yeah quote tweet withdrawal that would have made him finally push the button. Right. I do remember that being a really interesting eight hours on Twitter though, when it was like, oh, how are they going to get the nuclear codes from Trump to Biden? Yeah. And yeah, like, you know, like you said, every every U.S. president, yeah, hasn't really condemned the the use of the nukes. And it's, you know, at the same time, the Soviet uh, doctrine of tactical nukes is sort of used as a cudgel of, oh, look at how inhumane these 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 damn Rus- these dang Ruskies are. You know, they're, they're right. willing to use small nukes against our boys. Yeah. When in reality, wanted- it was like, yeah, no, well, we'd rather use them use tactical nukes so we can just send an icbm straight to moscow (laughs) yeah and we wanted to use tactical nukes in korea but the technology wasn't there um jimmy carter was the first uh president um not sitting president to visit japan uh to visit hiroshima and nagasaki and kind of do some peace uh peace building over there uh but obama was the first sitting president to visit hiroshima and nagasaki which was a big deal but, and he actually got the Nobel Peace Prize for uh, not being the first black president. He got it for a speech that he gave in Prague calling for the US to lead the world in denuclearization and all this kumbaya shit, uh, which was really kind of unprecedented at the time for a US president. Um, but Obama, when he went to Hiroshima, gave a speech using like passive voice for like, death fell from the sky, like, you know, using artsy shit to kind of obscure, like, uh, like active responsibility for, for this crime. But anyways, um, Obama, of course, the very last thing he added to his final budget on the way out the door was a $1.2 trillion nuclear modernization program, which Trump carried out and now Biden is uh, continuing. Uh, Biden also is kind of somewhat of an anti-nuclear guy, at least when he was all somewhat together. Um, he thinks that they're immoral kind of like from a Christian perspective and like seem to understand kind of the danger of it, but he can't trust him to, to remember he or follow also, up on anything like that. It, it, besides the fact that he's beholden to all of the arms manufacturers. He just likes conventional warfare. Like I remember watching this thing from him from the Yugoslav wars when he's like, we just need to go into Ser- Serbia we have to tell the American people there are going to be some casualties and then we're just going to need to have a German style occupation of the country. Um, and so he just, I think just really likes 
this idea of like American soldiers like fighting away the bad guys without yeah. the entire world being destroyed. Well, yeah, that, that was also, that was like the the idea, right? Is if you acknowledge that Vietnam was a bad war and that that was not the thing to do, it means you have to lionize World War II. And the American perception of World War II is look at our boys that went over there and did all that good fighting, you know, all, all the war movies and everything that's sort of made all the Americans think, yeah, that was, you know, we were over there fighting the good fight. And that if we that's just did that, point. if we just did that to more countries, you know, if you know, we beat the Germans back into shape. If we just went everywhere and did that, then the world would be a better place. Yeah, like at best you have Saving Private, or sorry, at worst maybe you have Saving Private Ryan that's like, look at us, you know, total heroes. And then, you know, at best you have some movie like Fury where they, they show the Americans doing war crimes. But it's like, look at those evil Germans. What they've been doing has been taking a toll on these poor Americans. And so that's now they feel point. bad for civilians and shoot German prisoners. Like um, so much of the United States' like moral authority um, and supremacy in the 20th century is wrapped up in the narrative of the atomic bombings. If those are called into question, then every other geopolitical maneuver following that naturally will be as well. And then that the whole thing kind of falls apart. The whole charade falls apart once this myth begins to be dismantled. And that is why as criticism rises, the death toll um, that we claim, the number of lives saved um, by uh, nuking Hiroshima and Nagasaki has uh, steadily risen. Um, but let me finish um, my spiel about Truman before I get to that, because I will. Um, so Harry, Harry Truman, fucking punk, um, he wrote in his diaries that becoming president was his greatest fear. So when he took office on April 12th and Eleanor Roosevelt left him with a good luck, Mr. President, uh, he said, I wish you didn't have to call me that. Just a deeply insecure uh, man. And rightfully, he was, he was right to be insecure because he was born to a poor family in Missouri. He was kind of scrawny, weak, wore glasses. Um, his peers called him true woman. Oh, His mother would tell him owned. that, uh, you know, oh, sweetheart, you you were meant to be a girl like God wanted you to be a girl. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest just in Truman's own journals and uh, or diaries and letters to his wife that he was experiencing some level of like gender dysphoria, emasculatedness, um, just really felt insecure in his masculinity, which is why he had a desperate need to appear strong. Um, so he was swooped up into politics after uh, serving in World War I, I believe, by uh, the Kansas City Pendergast machine back when political machines were just kind of out in the open. Um, I mean, they still are, but like back when they were like kind of cool and uh, like gangstery, <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, so he gets swept up um, in Missouri legislature um, and then the machines continue to move him up the political ladder. Um, his peers all shunned him as a hack. No one took him seriously. And he really didn't do anything of note during his time as a senator. He uh, launched an investigation into the Department of Defense about like misappropriated funds or something. But that was like that was like it. Um, so he had some sway as like a veteran, but really nothing of note. Um, so and Truman was not 
popular. Um, he was valuable to certain wings of the Democratic Party in that he was easily manipulated and easily controlled. Um, so he, this is another thing that even less people know about than like the truth of the atomic bombings. Um, Truman got the VP nomination by a coup. There was a soft coup at the 1944 uh, Democratic Convention in Chicago. I think it was in Chicago. Um, so Henry Wallace was um, FDR's VP for his last three terms. Um, and he was extremely popular. He, I wouldn't say he was a socialist, although he did um, believe he was a member of the Communist Party at some point. He kind of got the Aryan type of yeah. guy. Big yeah, his, guy. his dad was the secretary of agriculture, and then he also became secretary of agriculture. He was just a very, like a true populist. You know, people were saying that the 20th century was going to be the American century. And he said, no, this has to be like the century of the people, the common man century. He was a feminist. He was an anti-racist. He was anti-war. Like the, he was arguably for his time, like more radical than say like Bernie Sanders and way more popular. He was probably the most famous politician in the country just behind FDR himself. Um, so Wallace of course is like a huge threat to the establishment and people at this point kind of know that FDR's health is failing and the question of who's gonna take over from him uh, really starts to be seriously considered. The party bosses decide that, okay, we gotta get Wallace out of here. This is not, this is not uh, beneficial to us. And so I won't get into the whole story, but basically a vote is called uh, to, you know, they do the nominee and everybody says aye or nay. And it's really like whoever's loudest wins, which is a dumb fucking way to run a country. But I digress. Um, they, call, they prematurely call a vote. And this man named Claude Pepper, who is a senator, um, tries to reach for the mic to stop the vote or call uh, Henry Wallace's name be nominated he gets four feet from the mic arm outstretched somebody else snatches it and says all right well it looks like we have a consensus uh harry truman's our new vp nominee yay and like literally it was just like and that's how like that's you know one of the dumbest fucking most incompetent people to ever grace uh the oval office it, it's just like installed. just quiet the achievement yeah and the funniest coup ever like that's not even people people <laughs> talk about like politics as theater or like oh, politics is such a circus but that's literally like yeah some comedy routine right it, there yeah it's something you would see in like a a, a cartoon from like the 30s yeah. yeah just like the worst improv ever <laughs> uh, but anyways that's how that's how truman gets the nomination in the first place which i didn't know i was like how the Fuck did, like where did he come from that's how a coup um so, so I, I think um we should probably end this episode here okay and then next episode which uh all of you lovely listeners will get in three days time uh will be about i mean we're about to record it right away but will be about the bombing itself and the aftermath if you guys want to subscribe to our non-existent patreon to get it for to get it right away you should uh, yeah. DM the Juno Beach Twitter account and hey. ask us for a Patreon account. Yeah, and exactly. You'll get the, you'll you should get... definitely follow and listen. This is free political education, folks. Yeah. Banging history. Please um, support them. So, yeah, I mean, we're just going to do your typical end of the episode stuff, even though you're staying. Uh, do you have anything to plug? Um. Apart from the documents that you plug at the end of the next episode. I will be in 
probably the next week doing a stream with my mentor on this subject um, for this media project called The Culture that I'm a part of. So we're going to be kind of soft launching with that. So look out for that. If uh, you want to advocate for survivors of the atomic bombings, uh, the biggest organization, excuse me, is called Hedonkyo. Um, so you can look that up, but uh, just keep keep learning, uh, stay vigilant, and thank you for listening. And be sure to support Juno Beach. Thank you for that. Uh, you can find Haley on Twitter uh, at Rune Saville, R-O-U-N underscore S-A underscore V-I-L-L-E. Um, and uh, I guess we'll see you in three days time with the next one. Yeah, Take definitely, easy, definitely a very cheery episode. Uh, Take it easy, guys. Thank <laughs> you.